Well, this morning, open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 9. And if uh, you don't have a paper bulletin, which you can get either when you came in the door or at the information counter, you can find the outline to the sermon on your phone, on your tablet, and that's under the YouVersion Bible app and the uh, events tab there. All those notes are in there for you. We're continuing our sermon series, The Spirit, the Church, and the World, and we're in Acts chapter 9 today in the conversion of Saul. What we see is really nothing short of transformation. Transform means to change in condition, nature, or character, to convert. Now, we see transformation happening sometimes in our life. For instance, my daughter is really good at taking various ingredients of things, putting them together, and then adding some heat to it over a certain amount of time, and it transforms into something lovely that we can eat. Last night, she made homemade gnocchi. Do you know what gnocchi is? It's potato flour pasta. She has this thing that looks like a giant garlic press that you put a potato in and squish it out, and then you mix it with flour and salt, and then you... I don't even know how she did it, but it was amazing. And we have leftovers, so if you want some, call me. I'll give you some gnocchi. Transformation takes place when something like that happens. Some other elements change, and you put things together, and you add some heat, you add some pressure You think about transformation like in a landscape. We, many of us that are my age and older, remember what happened with Mount St. Helens. Those that believe in an old earth, those that believe in evolution and those sort of things would say, oh, something like that took billions of years to happen. No, it took about eight seconds for it to transform an entire landscape as the mountain blew up and blew down and all the ash and debris ever. Transformation. But even a life in Christ can be transformed. You might know somebody who used to be angry, but now they've got a calmness and a peacefulness about them. Somebody who before Christ was anxious, and now they have their mind set in faith. Somebody that before Christ was filled up with hate, but now they've turned to love. Before Christ, they were selfish, and now they're otherish. The conversion of Saul and his subsequent ministry in Damascus and Jerusalem Give witness of a life radically transformed in Jesus. A genuine experience with Jesus can change a life forever. We're going to say that more than once today. But a genuine experience with Jesus can change a life forever. And that's another reason why it was a perfect day to bring Miss Caroline here. Because as the ministry staff and I listened to her a week and a half ago, we went, wow, this is a life transformed. We want a lady like this, to talk to our congregation and us to be a part of transforming more lives like that. So if you have opened your Bibles to Acts chapter 9, we're not going to read the entire thing today. We will read it as we go. Well, we will read the entire thing, but in pieces as we go. But our scripture memory verse for the month, we're going to put that on the board because it reminds us of who we should be in Christ. And that's Acts chapter 8 verse 4. Let's say it together. Acts 8, 4. Those who have been scattered preach the word wherever they went. Acts 8, 4. Let me pray. God, our Father, that's about the church in Jerusalem when they scattered. And they preached the word wherever they went. We're not scattered. We get to gather together. But we only come here on Sunday mornings, sometimes other days of the week. But we go out in our lives And that's our prayer, that out throughout our life, 
in our workplace, in our home, in our neighborhood, with everyone we meet, we would be a witness of you that others might have a genuine experience with Jesus that might change their lives forever. We pray, Father, that we hear this today by your Holy Spirit as we study your word and the conversion of Saul. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stephen and Philip contributed their parts to our pioneer and world missions in the expansion of the church beyond Jewish people and beyond Jerusalem. And now we get another, Paul, whose name doesn't change to Paul until a few chapters later in Acts, so he's known as Saul here. And it's one key point for us in um, the establishing of the witness of the book or uh, the church in the book of Acts is these features we see that are, are not always normal. There are things that are essential, and then there are things that are exceptional. And when we study the conversion of Saul here today, we'll see a few things that are exceptional. What I mean by that is I'm guessing most of you did not have a blinding light come upon you when you trusted Christ as your Savior. I'm guessing most of you did not hear a voice from heaven speak to you very clearly and say, I'm Jesus who you persecute when you trusted Jesus as your Savior. I'm guessing most of you were not blinded for a number of days until someone came and prayed for you. Those are exceptional circumstances based on an exceptional character in Saul that Jesus had to impress in an exceptional way that he was sovereign and God's grace was upon him. But there are still essential features, things that happen in Saul's conversion and things that happen in our conversion, things that can happen in the conversion of anyone who trusts Christ, and that's what we're going to follow through our sermon today. So I've got six observations and six questions, and they're really six essential features that any of us as followers of Jesus can expect in our life. So the first point on your outline there today is that no matter who you are, no matter who you are, no matter who you are, we've got a sentence we're developing here with each of the six points, so this is just the first part of the sentence. But as you look in verses 1 and 2, it says, meanwhile, meanwhile from what? Well, go back to chapter 8, right? The church was persecuted. Philip preached in Samaria, Simon the sorcerer, Philip then the Ethiopian eunuch. But meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. So Saul, you'll remember, was first introduced to us when Stephen was stoned. And that it said that the folks that were doing the stoning laid their cloaks at the foot uh, at Saul's feet. And it said that Saul was there giving approval to them as they were stoning him. And so we go on. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, this was the name at that time for Christianity, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Do you see what Saul was? Saul was a zealot who was convinced that those who were following Jesus were wrong. And so convinced that those that were following Jesus were wrong, he was going to go to the town of Damascus from Jerusalem, 
150 miles away, a six-day journey by foot or by donkey, six days away in order to take prisoner people, basically to extradite them, to bring them back, to put them on trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin. This was a man who persecuted Christians. This is a man who Christians would fear. This is a man who was the absolute opposite of being a follower of Jesus. No matter who you were, before you came to faith in Christ, what were you like? Your first application question, ask that question. It says, who was I before meeting Jesus? Who was I before meeting Jesus? Now, for some of us, we were children when we met Christ as our Savior and Lord. And if you were a child when you met Christ as your Savior and Lord, you don't have a big testimony, but you can think back to what you were like as a child. You were selfish. You might have been mean-spirited to your siblings or to a friend at school that you wouldn't have called a friend, but an enemy. You knew that you did things like lie or cheat or steal. And those were the things that made up your life as a uh, a child. But as a teenager, maybe if you came to faith in Christ, depending on how old you were, you had some ability and some experience to do some things that maybe you're not proud of and you wouldn't want us to know about now. Some things that maybe were illegal, some things that maybe were immoral, and of course, all those things being sinful as well. But as an adult, if you came to faith in Christ as an adult, you have quite a different story, quite a different testimony. You lived life on your own. You took care of yourself. You paid your bills. You did this. You did that. But somewhere along the way, Jesus got a hold of you. All of us have a story of what we were like before we met Jesus. Some of you might be there right there today. Some of you might be sitting here with your arms folded going, I haven't met Jesus as my personal Savior and Lord, and you're not going to convince me today, Aaron. Good. I don't need to convince you. God by the Holy Spirit can. God by the Holy Spirit can, and He's probably been working on your mind for weeks and months, maybe even years or decades, to convince you that Jesus is Lord and that God does love you. And no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what's been done to you, God loves you. We move on in our sermon outline, and the second point is that Jesus loves you. No matter who you are, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. We take that from verses 3 and following. Verse 3, it says, as he neared Damascus on his journey, Damascus was an oasis out in the middle of the desert. And so, I don't know if Damascus, the oasis, was in sight as he's suffered through the desert heat and the long days and all that sort of thing. You can imagine Paul seeing and thinking, aha, there it is. The Damascus is ahead of me, this oasis in the middle of the desert. But as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Verse 7 says, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or did not drink anything. We know from other scriptures that Saul was a Pharisee. 
He says of himself that I was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He sat under the feet of Gamaliel, the chief theologian of his day for the Jewish people. And he was zealous in his application of the Jewish law to his life. And as you see here, he's going off to persecute people in the lives of others. Saul knew what we call the Old Testament, and he knew it well. And he had seen all the prophecies of Jesus and heard all the stories about his people, the Jewish people, and how they had rejected prophets. But he knew the Messiah was coming. And he knew he'd encountered something great here. You have to imagine what was going through his mind in these three days as he's fasting, as he's blind, as he's waiting, as Jesus, who spoke to him from the light, had said to him. What we know is that Jesus loves you. Saul didn't pursue Jesus. Jesus pursued Saul. The same is true of you and me. Although we may be seekers, although there may be a point where we begin to know about the Bible or we know somebody who's a believer in Jesus and we begin to ask questions and we begin to read the Bible, we begin to have conversations with people where we learn more facts about following Jesus. It is God in His sovereign grace that reaches down to us in order to touch our hearts and change our minds step by step to draw us to Him because He loves us. He loves us. Your application question there asks, how did Jesus interrupt my life? Your life's going along pretty good, you think, right? I got this together, I can do my life, whether you're a kid, a teenager, or an adult. You don't need Jesus. You look around the world and you see lots of other people living without Jesus, all different religions, all different non-religions, and they're living their life and they're getting along fine. Why do I need Jesus, we think to ourselves. But God in His sovereign grace works on our heart, works on our mind, calls us to Himself. And we see the need for Jesus. And Jesus, although it might not be in a light, although it might not be in a voice, interrupts our life as we know it because He loves us. Romans 5.8 says that God loves us no matter what. We didn't have to do anything in order for God to love us. John 3.16 reminds us that Jesus died for us. And if we believe that Jesus is God's son, that we can be his child. John 1.12 says that if we believe him and receive him, we have the right to be called children of God. We're adopted into God's family. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, God loves you. And he sent Jesus to die for you. And this same Jesus is still alive today, still appealing to you to follow Him, to come into a personal relationship with Him. No matter who you are, Jesus loves you, and a genuine experience with Jesus can change your life forever. Let's move on to our third point on your outline today. The third experience that could be common to all of us as followers of Jesus, and that's that Christ's followers will help you. 
It is my prayer that this is true of your life. It should be true of most of us. If you're a follower of Jesus, someone else helped you to become a follower of Jesus and grow in Christ. We talk about at Southview being growing Christ followers. It is who we are. We are growing as a follower of Jesus. It is what we do. We grow others as followers of Jesus. And the way we relate together and the things we do in worship and Sunday school and small groups and home groups and in uh, vacation Bible school and meeting one-on-one one, we're seeking to grow one another in Jesus. Let's see where that goes for us in verses 10 and following. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. I don't know about you if God's ever spoke to you in a vision. I believe God still does because God's still sovereign. If you think God can't, well, I'm sorry, you haven't experienced it yet. But if God speaks to you, you will know it's God. That's all I can tell you about that. Yes, Lord, He answered. Verse 11, the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So if you're Ananias, you're going, all right, God is speaking to me. God's given me some very specific instructions. That's crazy enough. And now he's telling me, I'm going to put my hands on this guy and he's going to receive his sight. How long has the guy been blind, God? What are you asking me to do here? I mean, if I'm Ananias, I got all sorts of questions in my mind. But look at Ananias' response, verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done for saints in Jerusalem. Saul was known. The church in Damascus, though it was 150 miles away from Jerusalem, had heard about what Saul had done and the persecution and the way that he was going after believers in Jesus there. And maybe they had heard that he was coming to Damascus, but his name was known. Verse 14, and he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He did know Saul was coming there and he knew this guy was enemy number one to the church. Verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Isn't that amazing? God in his sovereign grace had chosen Saul to be his instrument, a witness to the Gentiles, but also to the Jews. And God in His sovereign grace says to Ananias, here's what Saul is going to be, and you've got a very special uh, part to play. Have you thought about that? That the person in your life who's not a believer in Jesus, that may not want to talk to you about Jesus, that may even reject you because you talk about Jesus, God may have a very special part for them to play. They may be a witness to kings. They may be a witness to nations whose languages you and I will never speak. And you have a part to play. Let's go on. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul. Saul had gone out to persecute the church. And these may be the very first words spoken to him by a follower of Christ. Since he had met Jesus himself. And what does Ananias call him? Brother. 
I grew up in Texas. Pastors are called brother. I was not Pastor Aaron. I was Brother Aaron. That's just what you call pastors in Texas. Brother Aaron. And I came here and I still call people brother and sister and I still may do that today. And it's not so much here because it's my habit from growing up in Texas, but it's because I want to emphasize that, that we're the family of God. So when I call you brother or sister, it's not because I'm a Texan. It's because I see you as a brother or sister. And I pray that you feel the same way. And if you call me brother Aaron, it's not because you're from Texas. It's because you see me as a brother. That we see each other as part of the family. And here, Ananias, first words recorded in Scripture, to Saul, our brother Saul. The Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. There were two things that were going to happen when Ananias prayed for him there. Verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. Before he did anything else, he got baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. He got baptized even before he ate. Three days he had been fasting. Amazing. What was our point there? Our point was that God may send someone else to help you. God used Ananias to help Saul. Because there was something Ananias needed to learn. There was something Saul needed to learn. And there's something you and I can learn from this. And that is whether somebody is just newly converted or whether somebody's been a believer in Jesus for a while, we can help them grow. Your application question on your third point is this. Who assisted my growth in Jesus? Who helped me grow as a Christ follower? A teacher, a pastor, a friend, a family member? Was it intentional? Was it direct? Was it indirect? And I'm not just talking about your growth in knowledge, your Sunday school attendance, your worship attendance, those sort of things. Not just your growing theology, but your transformation as a follower of Jesus, becoming more like Christ, less like you. Let's move on in our scripture. Our fourth point is that some people will oppose you. You've trusted Christ as your Savior because Jesus died for you because God loves you. Others have come alongside to help you, either in witnessing to you or growing you in Christ since you trusted Him. But some will oppose you. Go on in verse 19 there. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, how could he preach right away? Well, any of us can. You don't need a theology degree to preach. You may not preach in a synagogue, you may not preach in a church, but you preach to people in your life. You share the gospel with them. Remember, however, Saul knew everything there was to know about what we call the Old Testament. He just didn't see Jesus as the Messiah yet, but now he does. Verse 21, all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Because remember, he's in the synagogue with the other Jewish people. And the other Jewish people are going, wait a second, time out, Saul. Didn't you come here to take people who preach this name back to Jerusalem and now you're preaching the name? This doesn't make sense to us, Saul. I mean, they had to go, slam on the brakes. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. The Holy Spirit was with him. And he was speaking and preaching and teaching. 
Verse 23, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. He had gone there to take other people, but now they want to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. There's some that are going to oppose you. Hopefully they don't want to kill you. Hopefully they don't lie in wait for you, but that is what happened in the life of Saul, which leads us to your application question or your fourth point here, and that's who fought Jesus as I shared him. As I shared Jesus with somebody else in my life, who's fought, who didn't want to hear about it, who was angry with me, who opposed me? If you've never had anybody fight you in sharing Jesus or oppose you in sharing Jesus, maybe you need to ask if you shared Jesus enough. I'm not saying we need to make people mad at us. I'm saying if you talk about Jesus enough and you talk about him even in a loving and kind way and present him as the answer, present him as the way and talk to people about that they've sinned and they need Jesus to save them from their sins, people aren't going to want to hear it. No matter who you are, Jesus loves you. Christ followers are going to help you. Some, even other Christ followers, might oppose you. But a genuine experience with Jesus can change your life. Let's move on to our fifth point here. Some will fear you. Some just won't out oppose you. They'll, they'll fear you. Some will fear you. Look at what goes on. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he joined the disciples, but they were afraid of him. Wait a second, I missed a word. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. So remember, he had persecuted the church in Jerusalem. He left Jerusalem to go persecute the church in Damascus. He comes back from Damascus. What we don't have here is that when he came to Jerusalem, or that sometime later idea, is that it was actually after many days had gone by. Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, that the many days that happened in Damascus was three years. That he had gone out into the desert. So he was in Damascus for a little while, preaching and teaching in the synagogue. Hypothetically, he'd go out to the desert. The Holy Spirit would speak to him. He'd come back into Damascus, speak to them. Or he was in Damascus for a little while, in the desert for three years, and then he just went straight to Jerusalem. But anyhow, the period of t- he goes to the Scripture that Paul tells us in Galatians is three years. So three years later, he goes to Jerusalem, and they're still worried about him and afraid of him, the believers in Jesus. They were not believing, it says at the end of verse 26, that he was really a disciple. Verse 27, but Barnabas whose name means son of encouragement, took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. So the church in Jerusalem was afraid of him to begin with. But let's go on in verse 29. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. So these were Jewish believers of Grecian background or Roman background, Greek, their first language. But they tried to kill him. Somebody else hates him here. When the brothers learned this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. When you take a stand for Jesus, some people aren't just going to oppose you. Some people are going to fear you. They won't know what's going on and who you are, which leads to that question. Who doubted 
or hated me. Remember, there were those Jewish believers in Jesus that doubted he had really been converted. But then there are the Grecian Jews who hated him and wanted to put him to death. Paul's got a pretty good track record here, right? He's been a witness in two cities, Damascus and Jerusalem. Both of them had people that wanted to kill him. I mean, I don't know what he's doing there. He's standing up for Jesus. I do know what he's doing. But he's doing it in such a way and arguing so persuasively that people just would rather kill him than listen to him. Remember our points here that no matter who you are, Jesus loves you. That some will oppose you. Some will fear you. And a genuine experience with Jesus can change your life forever. Which leads us to really our sixth and final point, which is our conclusion today. That God gets the glory. God gets the glory. When your life is changed, when you're a part of changing others' lives, God gets the glory. Even though we celebrate things here and we say thank you and way to go and I love you and I'm so glad you've served that way and you've used the giftedness and the abilities that God's gifted you to, to serve in His kingdom through our church and outside of our church, God ultimately gets the glory. A friend of mine, Pastor Glenn Stone, who died tragically in a car accident two years ago, said this. He said, nothing's greater than God's glory. Nothing is greater than God's glory. He went on to say, nothing's more lasting than His love. Nothing's more moving than His mission. God has called us for His glory, to share His love, to reach the world for Jesus. God gets the glory. Look at verse 31. Verse 31 says, Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Because of what those first missionaries, the apostles, had done, because of what Saul had done, the church grew in numbers, and God received the glory. Your final question on your outline is who... Has my life multiplied worship for God? Excuse me, how has my life worship multiplied worship of God? What do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. How have you lived out Jesus, shared the gospel, helped other Christ followers grow, made others and disciples in order that God would get the glory? That they've become more like Jesus because of you. You've become more like Jesus because of someone else. That you have multiplied the worship, the glory of God by your life. Who you are as a growing Christ follower that was part of growing Christ followers, a disciple that makes disciples. It's not just you living a good life, a comfortable Christian life, being a good person, an upstanding fellow or gal, but living on mission for Jesus. Committed to Him, growing in Him, sharing Him regularly with others, inviting others into a relationship with you, to consider a relationship with Jesus, to come to church so that they might hear the gospel and grow, and so on. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we're so thankful for Your Word that every time we open it, it has something to teach us. And the more deeply we read and the more thoughtfully we study, the more thoroughly we see your truth. And we've seen that here today, God.
that in the story of the transformation of Saul, there's things that all of us can learn that are essential to becoming a Christ follower. So, Father, we pray that we'd be obedient today, that we'd surrender however you call us to surrender, that we'd be willing to be a witness to whoever you call us to be a witness, that we'd seek to make disciples as we've been made into a disciple, and that day by day we'd become more like Jesus. God, we pray for anyone here today who hasn't committed their life to become a follower of Jesus. Maybe today would be the day that they, in their mind, say, I admit to God that I'm a sinner. I do believe Jesus is God's own son, and I commit my life to follow him. And for the rest of us, Father, make us obedient that we might bring you glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.